Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Hi, everybody. Good evening, and welcome to tonight's program, hosted by the Markula Center for Applied Ethics, the Commonwealth Club Silicon Valley, and the High Tech Law Institute. My name is Irina Raiku. It is my pleasure to introduce Kara Swisher, Executive Director of Recode and host of the popular Recode Decode podcast. Kara is one of the leading voices covering tech and media. She is an MSNBC contributor, host of the Revolution series on MSNBC, and contributing opinion writer for the New York Times. Early in her career, Kara worked as a reporter in Washington, D.C., before moving out to join the Wall Street Journal San Francisco Bureau. She is also Jesuit educated, having graduated from the Georgetown University School of Foreign Service. She received her graduate degree from Columbia University School of Journalism. Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in welcoming Kara Swisher. I just got back from South by Southwest, so I'm a little bit, um, I don't eat meat usually, and I had barbecue, and I'm still in a meat sweat coma, uh, so I apologize if I'm a little slow tonight, but I am going to answer a lot of your questions about um, tech and ethics. It's something I talk about a lot. It's something I write about a lot in the New York Times and at Recode and our podcasts and in our events. It's been a big issue for me over the past two years when I decided that tech really, uh, about right after the election, was really concerned that tech didn't understand the responsibility of the things that they had had created, and we're not taking responsibility for them. So it's been a major theme of mine for the past two years about. And I'm, I'm very interested in talking about it and answering your questions about it. And I'm just going to do a little bit of a presentation about what I think are big issues going on, um, and, then, and then we can talk about some, take some questions. And I really wish you would have some great questions. I, I use this, this app. Today I was on a program called 10 Things That Scare Me, um, which is at WNYC, um, and a lot of them had to do with death, um, but, which is a good thing to be scared of. Um, one of them was a raccoon in San Francisco that tried to fight with me. Um, and there were some other things, but one of the things that I, I was talking about, I use this app called WeCroke, which is, a, which is a, five quotes about death every day. And in Bhutan, it's supposed to make you happier. Um, so whatever. It's an app I like. It's cost 99 cents, and it's well worth the 99 cents. Anyway, what was interesting, I just got right before this, I got, a, um, I got one of my quotes of the day. Some of them are really like Ben Franklin, death takes no bribes. There's, some of them are funny. Some of them are depressing. Some of them are inspirational. And this one I thought was really apt for today, um, which was the sleep of reason produces monsters, uh, which was Fran, uh, Francesco de Goya, um, which I thought was really interesting as people asleep um, at what's happening right now and a lot of stuff. And I want to begin by saying, because I was questioned at dinner earlier about whether I like tech. I love tech. Um, I think tech is the most amazing thing, and it's always been the reason I started writing about it back in the mid-90s, which was a long time ago. And for those who are young here, we didn't have cell phones um, then. We didn't have almost anything. And so I have loved tech from the minute I saw it. And so one of the reasons I think I've been so um, hard on the on the big tech companies recently, over the, recently is because I love it so much, and there was so much promise at the beginning of the Internet age. Um, I was there when they made it commercial, when Al Gore actually did invent the internet, and he did in many ways. He created legislation that was integral to becoming a commercial, to, to commercializing it. Um, and so I've always thought of the internet as something that could be an astonishing thing, and I look at that kind of as the Star Trek way of looking at it, that it unites people, it creates tolerance, it creates education, it brings people together, it shows commonality, it allows people to talk to each other across great divides, and it starts to uncover all kinds of talent across the world, um, where, where people were living in their smaller worlds. It creates a larger world. So there, I love the internet, and I love uh, lots of things that technology brings us. At the same time, I think we can all agree recently some of the downsides and the dark sides of technology have taken over, and we have to start thinking about them as we move forward, because there's some really amazing technologies about to come into four that I think are both um, promising and amazing for humanity and, and scary. Um, I think the big problem with technology is not so much technology, it's the humans that use them. Um, and I think 
think that's always been the case of anything that we have. Um, I just did an interview with someone recently. We were talking about capitalism. This woman, um, Shoshana Zuboff from Harvard, she has a new book called Surveillance Capitalism. And I said, is there something wrong with this capitalism? She said, she said capitalism is like chicken. It tastes like whatever you want it to, depending on the kind of capitalism you have, which I thought was a great way of putting it. It's the same way with tech. It tastes like whatever you want it to, depending on what happens. And what's happened over the past couple of years has been an obvious misuse of data and people's data as it's being collected in the most massive quantities over the past um, the past couple of years by big companies like uh, Google and Facebook, especially in Amazon to an extent. And so one of the things I do want to talk about it and answer your questions about this is what this means. So I want to lay out just a couple of key trends, and I'll do it as quickly as possible so we can get as many questions as possible um, and talk about ethics and, and what it means around this about what's happening. So I want to lay out some key trends you need to know that are coming that are well beyond what's happened now in the, in, in the, in the life we're living. No one could have imagined, uh, you know, 10 years ago or a little more than 10 years when the, self, when the iPhone debuted that it would create this much wealth, this much opportunity, and this much trouble. Um, and so I think the stuff that's coming, you ain't seen nothing yet, you know, in terms of the kind of technologies that are coming. And I'm going to talk about some of the key trends. I had my computer here, but I forgot to plug it in and no matter what we say about the internet or new trends, electricity always wins out. Um, so, so electricity is sort of the dominant technology, really, for all of this for now. Um, so here are the key trends I think about. One is artificial intelligence and super intelligence, super artificial intelligence, super AI. Robotics and automation, self-driving or changes in transportation. The idea of endless choice, that privacy is under assault when data is gold. Um, continuous partial hacking, continuous partial attention, political and social unrest created by these technologies, and 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 th- these are the main ones. So let me go start with them really quickly. I'm going to go through them. Around AI, I think we have to keep in mind to start this discussion of what it means is anything that can be digitized will be digitized. I say this over and over and over again. Think about it. Anything that can be digitized will be digitized. That means jobs. That means uh, entertainment. That means every single thing you do will be digitized that is possible. Not everything can be digitized, but lots of things can. And we are on our way to that in a way that I think is going to be massively profound. Um, that means massive job disruption. Lots of jobs are digitizable. The easy ones, like we're going to have self-driving cars and therefore not cabs or not truck drivers, blah, blah, blah. But it actually extends beyond that um, to, to many iterations beyond what, what they're going to happen. Lawyers, accountants, doctors, very high-paying jobs, teachers, sorry, um, journalists. So there was just an AI that was writing stories that were pretty good. Um, that means there's going to be multiple careers for people, and they have to think about retraining people uh, a lot and reschooling people. Um, the, one of the things you have to think about when you think about AI is that be- as it becomes smarter, we become dumber. Um, and we rely on it more. And so we have to think really hard about the ethics around that, of being guided around by computerized uh, decision-making systems, of which there will be many, and they will be better at making decisions than human beings were. Um, uh, But it cannot fix the basic problem uh, that we have, which is that uh, what are we going to do in this kind of environment, and how are we going to react to it, and what happens to our society when this occurs, when this starts to occur, and it's it's already here. The second thing is about robotics and automation. The robots are not killers that are coming. They don't have to kill us to win at what they're doing. Um, I think we all have this idea. I, one of my favorite movies is Terminator 1, 2, 3, whatever, how many they made. I love it. I think it's great. I, have, I love the whole dystopian thing that they have going on. But the fact of the matter is they don't have to, um, to do that. I did an interview with Elon Musk uh, a couple of years ago where he was talking, which I think was the best idea of it because he's been very concerned about AI and robots. And his, his correct assumption is that they will treat us like house cats. Um, they will not try to kill us. They'll just sort of will be like, you know, oh, it's a house cat. How nice. I'll pet it, that kind of thing, which I thought was great. And his solution was, of course, to put a, put a chip in the back of your head so you can keep up with them, which I thought was an interesting solution. Um, he also suggested that it doesn't matter really because we're all in a simulation, so it do, it's not really happening, <laughs> which I kind of like. I'm like, he's right, right? The whole Trump thing, every day you're like, no. And then you're like, oh, no, there's this super race of people that are like running this game and they're having the best 
time, like my kid when he plays Red Dead Redemption 2. Um, so anyway, just think, put that in the back of your mind, that you may not be here, actually, and I'm not really speaking to you. Um, so it, when, when that's the case, when we think about robotics and where it's going, um, increasingly replacement of all repetitive jobs, mining, manufacturing, transportation, very specific robots that have to do with food, laundry, dishwashing. There's now a, 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 a thing in San Francisco, it's a coffee one, and then there's one that flips burgers. Right now, the reason why they're not coming into force is because people are cheaper at this point, um, but eventually they won't be, um, or it will be cheaper for those robots to do those jobs. Um, they will not be human, um, so we, the idea of trying to make robots more human is kind of an interesting thing from Silicon Valley, but actually, uh, I think probably it's much, some of the direction is going in not being human and not being these kind of things. There was a whole video that went on the internet of a robot opening a door. Um, if you ever saw it, everyone was like, oh, it opens a door. I'm like, my my kid, when he was two, could open a door. It's not that great a thing to do. But what it is is the idea that they will be they were replacing a lot of functionality. That brings in the idea of robot rights. We can talk about that if you want. If some of these robots become more sentient, do they have rights? Um, and in this area, uh, as, is, as in AI, we have to be um, careful of China, which is winning in a lot of these areas and putting a lot of money into them and could be dominating the next ages. And that all that brings with it is a country like China, which basically has a surveillance economy right now, whether they should be the ones making all these innovations or it should be in this country, which has a more of a democratic um, bent. Um, the same thing with self-driving. Um, I always say car. I'm writing a column for the Times right now saying cars are the horses of tomorrow. Um, it will have an impact on everything. And wh- how, do we do, how do we live in a, non, uh, a non-car environment? It's a really interesting question because cars did so much to open up our societies and to bring tolerance, open up people and move, move people all around. What does it mean when, when cars are not, not going to, you're not going to own a car? Um, that means cities that are car and truck free and the reverberations are, are massive when you think about it. Um, not just cars themselves, car ownership, insurance, all kinds of things that creates reverberations and ideas around the economy about how we should behave. And I think it's something we need to think about. The next one is the idea of endless choice, which means what you want is entirely up to you, and the computer will know what you want before you know it. That's another big ethical issue, is that this is our society, which is based on sort of a hunt-and-gather system, is going to be bringing things to you when you want it, before you think of it. They already anticipate what you want and what that means. That means things, obviously, like retail on demand, instant delivery, anticipation of needs, um, and, and, and much more. Um, a joke I always tell, and I'll tell it to you also because I do it all the time, is that you know you can see it already in a city like San Francisco, which I always call um, assisted living for millennials, um, which is a great line. I think it's so brilliant. I'm sorry. It just is. But you think of the things they're making, you get a sense of where it's going. Um, uh, it's true. Think about it. God. What do I need now? Because I want to remain a child for the rest of my life. Um, the question around privacy is obviously the biggest one in all this. And what do we, how do we think about privacy? It's something that people don't think of very much. We were having a really interesting discussion at dinner over whether this is going to be a big issue in the election. And as you know, Elizabeth Warren just announced this this massive idea of breaking up tech, but a lot of people are also talking about privacy bills. There's a California privacy bill that'll take uh, effect in 2020. People are worried that, that the federal government's going to do a watered-down version of that. Um, but we have to ask our questions as these societies become so much more data-heavy, what, what privacy means to me. And it's a very difficult issue to sell to, to, to voters and to citizens, the idea of being worried about your privacy. A lot of people aren't worried as much as they should be, although they're vaguely, you're vaguely worried about your privacy, but not in a way that's substantive and will change things. Um, again, uh, the, the idea around that is that um, these products are really great. Google Maps are great. Amazon delivers great. They, they do so based on enormous amounts of data they have about you. And the question is, what are they doing with their data? Are they... Um, are they uh, good guardians of this data? I think right now we can pretty much safely say they haven't been, and they haven't been in many, many instances, not just in hacking, but the use of data, the, the, the ability of third parties to access your data, the, the, the idea that you're, you're not the product here. Um, and there's been lots of discussion recently about that, especially around Facebook and what they're doing with your data. Obviously, Facebook is the largest collector of data um, 
Google and Facebook together, but Facebook really has a lot more personal data on you, but Amazon also does. And so the question is, how do we think about what we want to give them? And there's all kinds of proposals out there um, about privacy and how we should handle it and what, how we should think of it. Beyond what I think 20 years ago, Scott McNeely, who ran Silent Microsystems, said privacy, there is no such thing as privacy, get over it. Um, actually, there is such a thing as control of your privacy, even if there's no such thing as privacy. It's a question of who controls your privacy and how you do it in a way that's easy for people to um, to uh, to understand rather than just clicking yes to everything, like yes, my first child, yes, this, whatever. Um, so one of the things we have to remember is that with all these changes, we're about to undergo a period of time where it's a never-ending revolution. If you, As I said, if you think the changes that have come in the past 10 to 15 years are a lot, what's coming is massive, including stuff around health care, body replacement, um, enhanced vision, enhanced bodies, enhanced healthcare and things like that, um, the ability to track you everywhere, the ability to track your genes everywhere. Um, it's really, we're right at the cusp of this. And so we have to be thinking about the ethics behind what we want to do rather than sort of plunge headlong into this. It also creates a situation, I think anybody who's been on Twitter for half a second understands that cesspool, um, which is that that it creates a really difficult, people do not act well on these platforms. And the health of you as a person and the health of our society is being badly uh, hit by many of these platforms because they appeal to the worst in people rather than the best. Um, Jaron Lanier, who's the who wrote a great book about getting off of social media, someone who also loves technology, um, called it the most important um, experiment in human communications in the history of the world, and it's failing. Um, and I think he's probably being kind. Um, what's going on there. And so we have to think about what that means as we're, as this never-ending revolution happened and what, what this lack of unity means to our society, not just in this country, but abroad. It creates divisions. It creates arguments. I think, again, anyone who's been on these social media platforms right now, the, the good, even though some of it's very clever and fun and interesting to use, is beginning to outweigh the bad, especially in our, terms of our mental health. And that's definitely an issue uh, around uh, addiction, screen phone addiction, and things like that, which is yet another issue that we have to think about as a society and ethically is what should these companies be doing? Are they cigarette companies, or are you on your own? Is it your own fault for, uh, for staring at these screens for so long? Uh, Kevin Roos did a great, uh, did a great uh, column about going off his phone. He, he did a detox off his phone uh, this, I, in, in the New York Times, which was great. And he said, send us your screen shots. And I ended up sending mine. It showed 17 hours online a day. But what, it, what I had done is I had left the screen on. on the, not, it didn't ever turn off. And so it looked like I was insane. Um, uh, and everyone was like, you're insane, um, which I am. Uh, I use my phone a lot. But um, it turned out I'm using more like five or six hours a day, which is also a lot, um, as, as it turns out. And the question is, are these phones being designed? Are there, are there ethical considerations when they're designing them in terms of getting people not to use them as much? I think we all realize we are uh, in a state of continuous partial attentions with our phones. Um, and we like them. They're also just like we like Amazon delivery, just like we like Google Maps. We like them. We like what's going on on them. We like looking at them. We like staring at them. And part of it has to do with addiction. These companies do hire people um, to make you do that. So I think they do have culpability in how to make you not do that and maybe make you think about how to design them in ways that are more ethically um, fair so that you're not addicted like you are to a cigarette or, or sugar or something else. Um, but it's the same, it's the same kind of... Um, the same kind of things that you're um, that you're experiencing, and I always call this a, 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 the expression I use is the slot machine of attention, and there's always another minute to be spent on it. And so I think it's another issue, another ethical issue, is what these companies should do. Who's responsible? Is it our legislators? Is it you? Is it the are these companies? And something we should be thinking about really hard. So just to conclude, and then I will answer um, where we're going, obviously regulation is coming for a lot of these things, very similar to regulating a chemical company that's spewing uh, poison out into, the, into a river. Some of these tech companies are spewing poison out into society, and they've got to filter it better. They've got to deal with fake news and election tampering and hate speech and all kinds of things that most of the people who run these companies are ill-equipped to deal with. Uh, I don't mean to say they're not smart. I just think they're incompetent at these issues, these ideas of understanding ethics and understanding humanities. And they're going to need a lot of help in doing so because uh, while they've benefited enormously through their inventions, they haven't taken enough responsibility for those 
conventions and really do need to start thinking much harder about that. And they, they are certainly listening now, for sure. Um, but one of the things you've got to remember, though, is regulation is not going to save us. So there's going to be certain regulation that's going to work and certain regulation that's not, but it's certainly not going to uh, save us. Change is a now a near constant. Um, if that's the case, how do we sit and think carefully about how we want to conduct our society? It's a good question. Um, and the only thing that I can say is, as things are coming and as things are changing, you've got to really strap in. It's going to be a really bumpy ride as we begin to figure our way out in how this happens. The last thing I'll leave you with is I, I just did a recent interview with um, and a column about Maria Ressa, who lives in the Philippines. She's a journalist. Um, I, 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 you should listen to it, because one of the things she's talking about is the downside of what happens when uh, malevolent people get a hold of these tools. Um, one of the things that is nice about uh, what we have now is most of the people running these companies are good people for the most part. I don't find any of them uh, evil. Uh, I don't find them um, I don't find them difficult. I don't find them not aware and not smart. It's just that I worry about uh, these amazingly powerful tools getting in the hands of the wrong people and you're starting to see it globally um, and then not having any kind of controls on them. And as they become more and more um, able to target people and follow people and trace people, uh, including their genetics and other issues, uh, you have to really start thinking hard about where it could go. Um, I think a lot, of, a lot of attention has been given to what's happened in China around social, the social score, which, was, um, which, which is you basically, if you jaywalk, it's noted. If you do this, it's noted. If you don't use this, it's noted. And so you get a, you get a digital social score, and then you get benefits based on how you behave. And they are doing, they're tracking it digitally, which I think is brilliant and awful at the same time. And so one of the things I always say to people who are making things in Silicon Valley and inventing them is why don't, when you make things, because I think they don't have an anticipation of the consequences of what they're doing from a lot of the time, they think only about growth and invention and they don't think about consequences and, and what can happen once they invent these things. And so I always say, you know, why don't you think of what you're making as an episode of Black Mirror? And if it's a really bad episode, you can't make it. Or you have to do something to make it, to, to assuage the issues around it. I don't think in, innovation invention is ever going to stop, but there's certainly things we can put into place as it happens so that we're protected as a society and also enjoy the benefits of this technology of which we can all, uh, we can all agree on, but at the same time are not impacted by the negative parts of it, which are so clear today as we move forward. So thank you very much for your insights. Um, I wanted to start by asking what you make of the recent proposals to break up big tech. This is Elizabeth Warren, Senator Warren. Yes. Yeah. So Senator Warren, who's running for president, has, is full of ideas. Let me just say, she's really an idea factory, and I really do appreciate um, how many she has. And I like that in a candidate. She's interested in policy, and she's interested in ideas, and she's interested in shaking up ideas. She's not interested in incrementalism. She's interested in big ideas. That said... I think this particular proposal is not is not the correct way to think about it. I think she's doing it because it's Elizabeth Warren and this is how she thinks. But the idea of breaking up big tech, I think, is just a shot over the bow kind of thing. It's like, I'm watching you. I think that's what she's doing, although part of me does believe she does mean it. Um, I, what was really interesting is she proposed that, and one of the people I interviewed, this, two people I interviewed this weekend at South by Southwest, Senator Amy Klobuchar, and, uh, and uh, the Commissioner Marguerite Vestiger, who is at the EU in the competition, competition head. Uh, Commissioner Vestiger has been really tough on tech companies, has fined them enormous amounts of money, and has done more than anyone, I think, in this world, has hold, held tech to task for a number of issues, all kinds of things, from Apple to Google to Facebook. She's got a number of lawsuits happening number of fines, all, whether it's around taxes or local search or whatever. And I was really surprised when I thought she would go along with this, like, yeah, break them up. But what she said is she thought it was, it was, a, it was, a, it was a remedy of last resort to break up these companies. And she thought they're built this way. This is how they are. So how can we deal with a situation, say, where Google has 100% of search or Google and Facebook together have own all of Ad, ad, digital advertising and nobody else can get in. And she thought there were other remedies uh, ahead of breaking them up because what breaking up would bring is, first of all, huge disruption to these businesses, which have been built this way. And secondly, that it would be a, you know, a legal nightmare of, of many, many years and would never, would never get resolved. That you, to, to, de, to unwind some of these, are, these things that have been in place is really difficult. Um, now, there's a couple things going forward. You certainly can stop these companies from buying new things. I mean, I think we can all agree 
Facebook cannot buy Snapchat, for example. I think that will be a problem if they try to. Or uh, Google cannot buy Yahoo or whatever. Just uh, nobody wants Yahoo, but that's okay. Um, so, um, oath, oath. I just saw Tim Armstrong. I just did an interview with him. He's left the scene of the crime. Um, so, um, so that's the question. Is going forward, can they buy things? That's one. Can the big companies? Can Amazon? Probably Amazon, Google, and Facebook are the three that I think are the most problematic. Secondly, can we put regulation in place around data and the use of data? Um, Amy Klobuchar thought about doing a tax on the use of data, how they use data, if they use it for more things. Um, she's called for another investigation into Google about their behavior around local search, especially especially related to Yelp and some other things, because the FTC investigation of a few years ago was a toothless nothing burger, and so she wanted to renew that. Um, she thought about using these taxes to to pay for more uh, investigations from the FTC and make a stronger FTC or any of these agencies that regulate these companies. FTC is the one that regulates most of these companies. So other people think changes in uh, in in laws like the Communications Decency Act, Section 230, to which which gives broad immunity to internet platforms. Maybe the big platforms don't get it get the immunity anymore. That's already being chipped away from from some other cases. Um, and then, obviously, antitrust uh, action. And I think that's probably the one that's most interesting. Uh, Senator Klobuchar is on the antitrust committee in the Senate. They've just hired Lena Kahn, who has been a really big thinker on how to change antitrust. Um, this idea right now we have in this country with antitrust is that it causes consumer harm. And it's very hard to prove that, given how much we like Amazon, Google, uh, face, you know, the, the, these are free products we get, and it doesn't harm us, but it does. It harms rivals, and it could harm small startups, and it could harm a lot of. It could harm the the startup ecosystem. So, the changes in antitrust, let, how antitrust is perceived, could possibly be happening, and that's. Uh, so the breakup is, it certainly is good for a soundbite for sure. It's never going to happen. Okay, uh, and for an entirely different question, and I think we're just going to follow sure. the questions where they go. What advice would you give to students who are educated in and about to contribute to Silicon Valley? What are they going to do? Let's say they're going to work in these technology companies. Well, I think one of the things that's good about these technology companies compared to other companies is you do have more of a voice. Like you saw what happened at Google uh, with the, around um, them paying $90 million to someone who was accused of sexual harassment, which was a nice payment for that behavior. Um, and then the, 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 this, this around forced uh, arbitration around these issues, they changed stuff by speaking up. And I think that's one thing, is that when you're at these tech companies, the talent is at a premium, and therefore you have uh, an ability to say things in the way other workers can't. And so that's one thing, is to be outspoken as you're making them. The second thing is, if you're making products or issues that you don't, agree with. You should talk about it and have a, a discussion about the implications of whatever you're making rather than thinking about growth, growth, growth at all costs. And I think growth, growth, growth has been, I think, the, the, the mantra for most of these companies without regard to the damage that they could do. And, you know, unfortunately, Facebook had the most unfortunate motto for a long time that they stuck up, they put posters on their walls like they're Stalin or something. It's crazy when you go to these kind of like big banners. Um, and they don't even get the, I'm like, Stalin, they're like, what? And I'm like, oh, of course you don't understand. Um, but um, it, one was move fast and break things. I think that was one that was a real problem. Like when you really start to think about it, well, you broke some things like, say, democracy or whatever, and you need to fix it. And that's what, that was interesting. And I think now I think move fast and build stable infrastructure is what Mark is calling it now, which I, makes me laugh. Move fast and build stable infrastructure. That really gets them going. You know, the engineers. So I think really being aware and speaking up and talking about the implications and making, making sure they, that you're not part of something that you know what you're making. I think you have the, the ability, if you're a Silicon Valley engineer, surely, than if, than if you're in other parts of the business world. Um, do corporations need ethics departments? And if so, how do they function well without fear of retribution or right. without being ignored? Yeah, I wrote a column about this in the New York Times. Do, does Silicon Valley companies need a chief ethics officer? Um, and, uh, and, and some of them are thinking about it. Salesforce is certainly have been, has been talking about hiring one. Some other companies have been thinking about it. And, and I, I only brought up the idea is, do they need one? Is there someone at the top of the company that should be thinking of ethical issues? Obviously, it has to come from the CEO for, 
or, or the top executives of the company these issues. But I, 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 I was just bringing it up. What if you had a chief ethics officer? I don't think it would work because I think that person would be toothless and nobody would listen to them. And when they saw them coming, they'd be like, oh, here comes the chief ethics officer. Let's run. Um, so I think that's – unless they were truly empowered by the CEO, I don't think a chief ethics officer – could work unless the CEO really truly is listening to them. But if someone comes and says, hey, your quarter is going to be ruined because you have to stop doing this product, I can't imagine a CEO uh, doing that. Um, it would be nice. You know, it would be really nice if they did that. But I think they don't think the, the, the pressure from share, you know, we're, we, we live in a shareholder capitalism, if you want to think, you know, that shareholders win above all else. And so the other constituencies, including consumers, uh, employees and society at large are not the first thing that everybody thinks of. They think of shareholders. And so I think it would be hard for a chief ethics officer to have any real impact unless there's one company that decides to do it and give that chief ethics officer a lot of power, which you just, I just, I don't see it. I, I don't know. Maybe. I don't know. Maybe on television. It, just the other night on television, I was watching a show where they had a, an ethics officer reporting to the president of the United States, and I was like, mm hmm. Sure. Okay. And he's like, I'm not going to do it because you convinced me of the wrongness of it. I'm like, mm, mm-mm. you know, whatever. But I'm cynical. So misinformation, disinformation, fake news is a growing global concern. Yep. What do you think of Google and Facebook's current efforts to address this issue? And how do you think they should approach it? Well, I've spent some time at Facebook recently. They're trying really hard, just so you know. That was a message to me, which I'm like, okay. Um, I think they are trying really hard. I do. I think they're. They think it's a problem that's really a big issue. That they they can catch certain things through AI. They can catch certain things through human beings. But it's a really difficult problem given the massive amount that comes over their systems. Both, you know, Google is less so because it's just search, right? So it's search is pretty clean. Um, but YouTube is what you're talking about. That what's going on over YouTube, and I think. Being able, I just interviewed Susan Wojcicki, which you can listen to. It just went up today. Uh, who's the CEO of YouTube? It's a really massive problem and highly complex. And 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 the amount of stuff coming over, it's like it's some incredible number of how many videos, seventy billion are uploaded every fourteen seconds, or some it's some number like that, which is breathtaking. And so the ability to monitor that is really difficult. And and on one hand. Uh, they can do it by AI, but AI makes a lot of mistakes, right? Like, like today with the Elizabeth Warren ads, Facebook, the reason it was flagged is because there was a logo in there, and you're not allowed to use logos, and then Elizabeth Warren was able to make hay out of it. But that was just an AI thing pulling it. Um, and so, um, so that, there's all kinds of problems when you let it be automated. Um, so I think it's, it's really, really difficult uh, to do that. And I, I, I don't think, given the, the enormity of it, it's really hard. The second is, some of it's really, truly horrible. Um, Casey Newton wrote a great piece I'd urge you to read in The Verge about uh, Facebook, uh, people who pull down horrible things from Facebook um, in Arizona. They contract out these jobs, and they don't pay them very much. And it's a really awful uh, job. And, and so at one point, these people were getting post-traumatic stress disorder. And one of the things they were doing is they were having sex in the stairwells. And then one person started believing that 9-11 didn't happen. And then another person started, you know, like you start to believe the conspiracy theories you're hearing and all this stuff. And, you know, the, the wormhole that goes down to bad on YouTube is really quite dramatic. From regular places, it goes down to uh, a really ugly places pretty quickly. And the question is, how do you clean this off. And the reason it's like this, because they didn't have standards in the first place. Upload anything you want. Well, guess what? You are listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live for one of our 500 programs each year. You can find us online at commonwealthclub.org. Now, back to our program. So if we have these systems that are so large that they're basically ungovernable, right. are we supposed to just sort of live with that, or do you have any thoughts? No, I do not have a thought. I mean, I think one of the things, the thing I used in the Times this week is, you know, Mark's pivot to privacy, this idea he suddenly occurred to him, people like privacy. Um, 
which is called Snapped. I said it's called Snapchat. Nice to meet you. Um, it was uh, it was interesting, but one of the things I think they've done is they've created not just Facebook, but others is uh, YouTube and Facebook. I think are the two that are most problematic because they're so big. Um, there, I, there's lots of other problems on the internet, but Reddit. You know, there's some issues on Reddit. There's issues on lots Twitter. of these. Twitter, of course. I just forget them because I'm like, ugh, whatever. What's going on over there? I don't think. Okay, it's funny sometimes. Okay, it's funny, um, but uh, but I think that they um, they can't get. Con- I don't think they can get control of the situation. I just don't. So, switching gears again, um, do you think AI will de-skill our ability to think ethically? Well, if a computer is making all our decisions for us, yes, yes, presumably, yeah. Yeah, if there's not a human intervention into some of these things, and they make decisions better. First, it'll be decisions about things like, um, you know, if you have a radiology report, you know, computers are better at figuring out which one's the tumor, which one's not catching. They can look at thousands of photos, really, uh, um, x-rays really quickly and do a better job than a human doctor can do. And so the question is, we'll start by giving, uh, abrogating those decisions to them, like easy decisions, and then it'll get more and more hard. Like, why not let them make the decisions about lots of things? Um, We already, you know, I don't use these services, but like Tinder, that kind of is making decisions for us around dating and stuff like that. So you start to really um, rely on these systems for everything. And And it is a slippery slope down to really important decisions, I think. I think it will be. I mean, you already rely in so many ways on, just think, again, for these young people, we used to have these things called maps, and they were paper, and then you'd have to pull them out, and then you'd look at them, and you get lost anyway, but you just don't do that anymore, right? You just don't know how to, not that you don't know, you could use a map if you had to, but you certainly, you abrogate one thing after the next, and some of them are great, like mapping, why even bother? Or there's certain things like, why even bother? Let them do it. Let let the let the algorithm figure it out for me, and sometimes that removes human ability to make decisions for sure. So, should we try to differentiate between areas in which um, the decisions have moral weight and import, and we should keep those kind of decisions Perhaps. for ourselves? I mean, like, where, what would you differentiate if if it's better at dis- diagnostics? Why would we? Oh, let's let the bad human doctor do it over the smart computer. Like, why would you do that if you're sick? Like, you'd pick the. Like, you'd pick the one who has the better record. Or why wouldn't we have self-driving cars when human beings are the problem with cars? Like, people driving is the problem. Um, cars are not the problem. It's, it's human beings and cars. When you have, when a, you know, as much as it gets a lot of attention when self-driving cars um, crash, when one car crashes, all cars learn. When one human crashes, one human crashes again. Like, it just doesn't, like, people don't learn. Um, and or they do, but not really well. And so the question is, when we start to aggregate those, okay, they're better at driving, they're better at healthcare, they're better at picking what foods we want, they're better at it. Start it starts to get pretty easy, you know. It, it's um, I don't know what we what could we pull off. You know, we do it. They do it dating now. You do it with your friendships on Facebook and what news you see. You've already given that over. Um, in many countries, Facebook is ninety seven percent of the of the news. Like how many people get news? So I don't know when you would stop if it's better. I'm thinking of technology more broadly. There was the recent controversy around here, if you heard it, about a telepresence um, medicine Mm -hmm. announcement of somebody's impending death. And everybody felt, or a lot of people felt, that was wrong. Even if they were willing to have, let's say, robots performing surgery, they were not willing to have a robot roll into somebody's room and tell them they're about to die. Oh, yeah. So they will be. You think that, that yeah, people sure. will just get used yeah. to that? I think one of the things we've done, and Commissioner Vestager was talking about, we've traded a lot of things for convenience. Like, convenience is what we trade it for. Like, we've traded all kinds of human behaviors for convenience. And the question is, why are you doing that? Like, that, people have to actively stop and do it themselves. But when things are convenient, they're convenient. I think, you know, things we didn't do before, we're very used to. I mean, that's what happens, right? You start to use a phone and you rely on a phone and then you can't imagine life without a phone. Or, you know, you just, you start to, you move down that road and then it becomes very easy to be um, uh, used to the idea of it. So do you feel like this controversy was in part because it's something new? 
that Which we're ones? responding the idea of a telepresence yeah a i think people robot. get used to that really quick you'd be amazed how people get used to things right don't you you sort of start they're starting in your home and um, I, w- one thing I'm heartened by is I, I bought a house in D.C. I live here in San Francisco. I also have one in D.C. where my kids live. And they had nests there. And I was like, oh, I don't want these here. I'll just leave the thermostat there. But they also had nest cameras. And my kid went around and unplugged every one of them, which was fascinating. I just let him do it. I agreed with him completely. But, um, but it was interesting that some people are aware that they don't want to be monitored in their homes. Um, now, I still don't know if they're on. I just sit there and I'm like, can it go on without the electricity maybe <laughs> and now you know this recent story of google i was like and i was and someone was like unplugged were you that worried about google i'm like i am i know them i was married to a google executive so i do i am scared of them um and they um and i was i was married to google executive. um one of the better ones but still mm. um and and one of the things that just came out is they had an extra camera in one of their nests oops and they were like oh we forgot to tell you Oh, you did? Did you forget? Or did you forget? Like, what was the, what, you know, they just, and part of me is like, I think maybe they did forget. But then I thought, no, they didn't forget. Yeah. Right. Um, so here's a question pushing back against something you said. It says, most active AI researchers are far more skeptical about AGI superintelligence than people like Musk. Mm-hmm. Parentheses yes. was not an AI researcher. And parentheses, yes, AI advances continue to be only in narrow applications, not toward general understanding of any kind. Why do you share Musk's take on AGI superintelligence as imminent or you. even likely? I, I'm just telling you what it is. I don't necessarily share it, but because I've seen everything, they always say it starts here and it's not going to be that harmful, and then it is. Like I just, it's sort of like. Um, you know, like propaganda, it starts off real soft and then it becomes real ugly. I, my, one of my study, my majors at, at Georgetown at the Foreign Service School was the uses of propaganda. And you see it slowly rolling out in small, tiny little ways. And then it moves to more and more and more. And so I think just I can imagine a world in which it is, does have narrow applications now. But I think worrying about it is completely appropriate because I do think when it, it starts to roll, it it tends to roll and people like to invent, keep inventing. And you would imagine, um, that if they can do it, they will do it. They, why wouldn't they? And that kind of stuff. So yes, right now it's using for very narrow applications, but it's not going to be, it's it's just once something becomes useful, it will roll out to other parts. But I agree. Elon's been a little like, you know, I don't know if he's John the Baptist or he's just screaming, but now we, who knows, right? You know what I mean? Like he's had some personal troubles, but, um, but I think it's, it's important to consider for absolutely, because all these things become put in the wrong hands, get used badly. I just never seen it in history where it doesn't happen. Right. When these things, when these things get rolled out, they're going to be for the good of humanity. And then they're sometimes for the good of humanity, but often for the detriment of people. Um, so here's another question from the audience. Do we make social media the censors of societal free discourse? Oh, yes. How do I know the mind of my society if I'm not free to sample it? Yes, that's an interesting question. And I, I agree. I, should, should Mark Zuckerberg be the arbiter? Now, he's a private company, so he can be. Let's just be clear. He's not the government. And people always make this false argument. Facebook can't ban Alex Jones. Yeah, yeah, they can. It's a private company. It can do it. It can do whatever they want. Now, the question is, has Facebook and Twitter and Google become public utilities, which I think Elizabeth Warren was getting at, is that they're not just companies. They're more than companies because they're how everybody gets their information. And so then you have to wonder, is it, can you let them make decisions? Should, should it, and, and Mark and others and Jack Dorsey do not want to do this. Um, that said, some of the stuff does violate stuff. Some of the stuff must be taken down. And they do take things down. When they say they don't want to take anything down, it's a lie because they do it all the time. And they have rules and people break them and then they pull them down. And I think what's happened is it's the haphazard taking down. So how do they figure out a system where maybe a greater group of people can be... They've talked about a council. They've talked about... There's all kinds. It's just there's so much stuff coming over. So you wonder how they're going to do it. So the question is... Should they make a set of rules that everyone can agree on? If people break them, they come down, right? That's one way of doing it. One is let's take off the Russian bots. Let's take off the false news. Well, how do you decide false news? You should, if they can put in all kinds of things in place, maybe this could happen. Um, they've tried uh, fact-checking. That hasn't worked really well. Some of the fact-checkers quit. Um, they've tried group stuff. They've tried all kinds of things. And so the question is how can we decide what should, should do it? I think one of the issues that people have who are 
free speech, you know, this idea of free speech at all costs is that some of the stuff, like, I'm sorry, Alex Jones stuff does not, he can go and do his, he can make a website. It's not like nobody, nobody's letting him speak. He can go do a website. He just can't do it on Facebook. He just can't do it on Twitter because he's broken their rules. I don't see anything wrong with that. I don't think that tamps his speech down. He can rant all, by the way, he was just on Joe Rogan. One of the most fascinating things about all these people who say they never can speak is they never shut up. So that's, think about that, right? Oh, I bet I've been, I literally am like, stop talking about how you can't talk because you're all you do is talk. Like I just had a, an encounter with some, I'm not going to say who, cause he'll make hay out of it. He said something, I said something incorrectly. Uh, no, I, I said something and then he, he wrote it incorrectly cause he's, he's a hot take hack. And so I just, there was no fighting it. There was just no, like, all I said is as a mother, I do not like my son to watch one video and get to neo-Nazis in six clicks. That was controversial. You know, and they're like, would you take this person down? I said, I would, but I'm not running YouTube. And then it was like, she would ban him. She wants them. She's demanding banning. And I'm like, no, as a mother, I don't like my son getting to neo-Nazi videos in six clicks. Thank you. Like, please stop or do something where 13-year-olds don't, you know. And I think that's, for, for a private company, that's a thing to demand. I also don't like poison in my cereal. So I'm going to be crazy and say, please don't put poison in my cereal. That would be really nice of you. So it's just, it's just an interesting, I, I, I see the point and who's going to do it. It's just, we've got to come up with ways to, to figure for people to have access to different points of view, but at the same time, not be subject to fake news, which is very clear. It's these, they know where it's coming from and they can, they can remove the dreck out of it and leave the difficult voices to argue with each other. And they should certainly be allowed to do that. What do you make of the premise of that question that um, that by going on, on if on, if social media was not censored, you would get a sampling of the mind of our society? Do you think that's accurate? Oh, I think I think it's a dream. I don't think that's true. You get a sampling of the dirty, vile mind of our country. You know what I mean? There's all kinds of manipulation going on that you're that you that. You know, you sort of like, you don't want to protect people from it, but they're not even aware of it. They're not even aware that bots are what's doing this. Like, one of the things I wrote, we did a piece on was there, during the Roseanne Barr, she said that stuff about Valerie Jarrett, and then you had uh, Samantha Bee making that remark about Ivanka, and they happened at the same time. It was really interesting. So right around the Roseanne thing, all these bots started going about, Roseanne's awful, Roseanne's awful. Roseanne shouldn't have been fired. Roseanne should have... They were from the same places. They were trying to create discord, and then human beings get attracted to them. And so human beings didn't start this. Most people were like, oh, Roseanne. Like, right? Like I did. Like, oh, once again, she said something stupid. Um, but but she, they, they, the bots started it, and then humans get pulled into it. Like, they get pulled into the bot anger, which is fake, because they don't care what the, what the argument is. And then the same groups of people, they track these, the same who were doing this, were over at Samantha B saying, she's great, leave her alone. Oh, she's awful. She said that terrible word about Ivanka. Like, you know what I mean? And so it went like this. And, and so then humans get dragged into it. And so you're being manipulated to being angry, and then it creates real anger. Fake anger creates real anger. And so... If you don't understand that, that's a real problem. Like, if that's what's being, being done, the discord, they don't even now have to even get on these things. They just pretend they're creating discord, you know, that there, there could be discord on there. And so what it does is it gets people used to this constant state of enragement um, that is fakely created in the first place. And, and that's what I worry about. And they can do it with, with what's going to be really damaging, is, and they started to do this when they attack individual companies and start economically hurting our country, like starting a rumor about Disney or starting a rumor about whatever company. And they've done that. They've already started to do those. And so what does a comp- com- company do when they're subject to false rumors that then for just even a short second make the stock go up and down and stuff like that and so that's what we have to worry about is and at the very least these companies should be monitoring bots and they can do that that they can and really removing them from their their from their thing that that's an excuse i don't they need to remove false accounts from their from all their platforms and they don't they haven't done a great job of it. i know it's hard but they need to that's not as hard as they claim it is from what i understand um, and, and what it does is I think it does create a, a, an enragement factor that then gets amplified and amplified and amplified and amplified. And that's, I had a, a, a really well-known reporter 
arguing with a bot. I think I was doing it the other day, and I texted this reporter, and I said, stop arguing with a bot. You're arguing with a bot. They're mad about your story, but they're really not a person. And they were like, oh. Like, and <laughs> you could see the state this reporter was in, and, and it sort of, it does, if anyone who's been on this, nobody feels good about those encounters, right, at all. Is this related to something that you mentioned in your il initial list of concerns, which was the partial attention? Yeah, the continuous ongoing partial. continuous partial attention. Well, that's attention. related to addiction, and that's a question. That, those are very good questions we should ask tech companies, um, that these, these devices are made for addiction. They just are. And what's interesting, I'll show you. So when you go like, you have this on the Apple computer. It's been written about a lot of times. It's called grayscale. turns it gray. It's just three little taps on the right side. This is not something you want to look at. It's fascinating the minute you remove color, how you don't want to use your phone. You're like, oh, that's not good. I don't want to play that, like kind of thing like that. And so there's all kinds of things they can do to reduce this, this obsession with it. One, another one is to put addictive type apps in folders so it's harder to get to them. Like put Uber on the front because you don't want to like look at your Uber, right? You just call your Uber and then you close it. How much time do you spend on your Uber? None. Zero. It's a utility app. And so to bring the utility apps to the front and then put all the addictive apps in folders or inside folders, inside folders, there's all kinds of things you can do. I mean, this Grayscale one works real wonders. It's fascinating what people, like the minute I put it into Grayscale, I hardly pick it up because it's, oh, it's not pretty, you know? You know, it's pretty. Like, and they do all kinds of games to make you click on that red button. They just do. They have people there. And Tristan, Tristan uh, Harris has talked a lot about that. But a lot of people have. And that's something we can really say. We know what you're. We know you hired anthropologists and psychologists and everybody else to make us click that red button. So maybe you are like cigarette companies. So we'll see. In years to come, we'll see how we've affected our brains. Do you think the United States would ever develop a social score system like China, and why or why not? I think we will. I think we will. I think, we will. I think people are going to be tracked everywhere. I, I don't know why, I, I, unless we get... Like, we don't have a national ID. I know, but again, it's one of these things where it's easier. You know, it'll give you more things. You'll get more things. It'll, be, it'll come very friendly. It, when it comes, it'll come really friendly. Wouldn't you like? Wouldn't you like to get this free thing? Wouldn't you like to have free delivery? Wouldn't you like to have people come in your home and deliver things? Wouldn't you like? You know, it starts to become. I, I, I don't know why they wouldn't do it if they can. It seems like most governments love to track people. Like you can see that what happened a couple of years ago when they were, you know, all up inside of the grills of Google and stuff like that. Even our government was. Um, with PRISM and stuff like that. They just can't help themselves. I just, like, more information. And the thing is, the information wants more information. Like, the more information you get, the more you want, the more it tells you things, the better it is, the more robust it is. And, um, you know, I don't know. It doesn't seem like people have less cell phones, right? <laughs> they just don't. They have more and more screen time and more everything. And so, um, it, it, you know, it would be nice if everyone put them down, but I think, one, they're really hard from a, from a psychological point of view to put down. I think there's all kinds of um, physical things that are happening. There's all kinds of studies. There's going to be a million studies about this, about the adrenaline and the feelings that you get and the endorphins or whatever. I'm not a doctor. But it's very clear that I, I, don't, I don't smoke. I've actually never taken any drugs, but I cannot get off my friggin' cell phone. And so I know it's an addiction. It's something. It's something like, that is a problem. Um, there's all kinds of things to try to assuage it, like like Ariana Huffington tried to give me a bed that you put your cell phone to bed in the other room, you plug it into, and it's a little bed with sheets and stuff. <laughs> I was like, you're crazy. So, whatever, put it in another room. There's all kinds of things, but it's hard. The blue light thing. The, there's all kinds of things. Do you think that people are starting to question, though, that free paradigm? Do you think there's going to be an opportunity for new yeah. business models? And especially if we start to worry about, you know, things like the cost of free yeah. as a credit system like well, China's. It ain't then. free. It, nothing's free. Let me tell you. It's not. I mean, it's just not free. It's, you think it is, but it isn't. Free prime, it's not. You, by the sides, you pay a fee, but it's not free. They love collecting your data. They love having all the information about you. They love, oh, want more toilet paper? It seems like you need more. Like, you know what I mean? Like, 
Look, Jeff Bezos is only doing TV shows, which are all very good because he wants to sell more toilet paper. Let's be clear. Like everyone's selling something else with what they're doing. You know, Apple has made made hay out of this in, in a good way. I, I do like Tim Cook quite a lot. I know people think I like him too much, but he seems like an adult when he talks about these things. So it's a pleasure to talk to him. Um, but, you know, and it's also in their business interest to talk about privacy and talk about um, uh, all kinds of issues like this, that you that this he doesn't have an advertising based company and therefore and they failed at advertising also they tried for a short time um but his he just has to sell devices and so one of the 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 things they've pushed is this idea that advertising based businesses are by their nature um problematic for society and he talks about that a lot at the same time he gets a lot of money from google for search so mm, uh oh like you know what i mean like they get billions from google every so, so I guess to build on that a little bit, one of the questions we got from the audience were, um, was, are there any people or companies in Silicon Valley that you think are doing things right? I think they're trying. I think, I think Mark is trying. I do think. I do. I know I've been really tough on him, but I do think he means well. I do think he's, he's a, one of the loveliest people you want to meet in terms of thoughtfulness and everything else. I just don't care. I'd rather him be mean. You know what I mean? On some level, like if he's going to get the job done, I don't care what his personality is like. He happens to be a very thoughtful person um, for all the issues I have with him. Um, but I do like certain people better than others. I like Tim Cook. I like dealing with Mark Benioff. He's, he at least answers your questions. I do like Susan Wojcicki, who runs YouTube. I think she's thoughtful about it. I don't know what she can do about it. Um, I really like Brian Chesky, who's the CEO of Airbnb. They've got all kinds of problems. There were certain stories recently about parties and these things and neighborhoods barring them and all kinds of issues. So I think that I, like, I happen to like him. I think he's super thoughtful about the impact of his business uh, on things. And I think he often does the right thing over business. He's done it several times and I don't think it's just PR. I think he really does want to build a business that around immigration, he, he did a lot of very outspoken stuff that couldn't have helped them. Um, and, uh, and you know, there's certain, there's certain companies, individual companies that I like a lot. Um, I'm trying, you know, I like Aaron Levy from box. It's hard not to, he's really funny on Twitter. So, um, but there's certain CEOs I like, um, uh, I'm trying to think of some of the commerce people I like a lot. Katerina Lake and uh, what's her name? Who runs run, Rent the Runway? I think they're really. And I just did an interview with Emily Weiss, who runs um, Glossier, which I think is a real. Some of the commerce companies are cool. I like some of the commerce companies, and they're really interesting. Some of the smaller ones. Glossier, she's an interesting character, and a really, she's doing some interesting things using digital that are pretty cool. They they crowdsource a lot of their products, and they only have a few SKUs. And I think their products are great. You know, we'll see how big it can get. But it's really, she's, she's using digital, crowdsourcing, social, and actual products. And now she's created some pop-up stores that are really interesting. Those are cool. They, they're like crazy full of people, mothers and daughters. And her products are great. I, she, I, I'm not a makeup person, as you can tell. And uh, she sent me this thing called um, Milky Jelly Cleanser, whatever. And she said it was going to make me dewy, which I was like, I am not a dewy person, lady. <laughs> and so, and I use it. And I'm like, oh my God, it's so milky, so jelly, and so dewy. I don't know what to do. <laughs> I wrote her, I'm like, I can't believe this. But she was right. I like that. I think she's cool. Um, I'm trying to think of some companies I've interviewed recently. Um, there's a whole bunch of them. I think you did well. Yeah. You named quite yeah. a few companies. Yeah, I people, think the yeah. commerce ones are cool. All right. The commerce ones are all cool that I've seen recently. So another question from the audience is, we've seen how politicians abuse the unfiltered access to the public via social media. You mean Trump? It doesn't say. Oh, it's her. Um, Him and Ocasio are the only two that know how to do it. Uh, how should we curb politicians from spewing propaganda via social media? We cannot. That will never happen. Like, oh my God, Trump has found his greatest love, like besides himself. You know, he, 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 this is his... The Twitter stream, he loves it. He's using it. Um, I did a really interesting column comparing him and Ocasio, who I think is brilliant. It's, she speaks fluent social media. She's a native-born speaker of social media, and he is not. He's, he's, he's crude. He's broadcasty. He's yelling. You know, that's his method. And that's not a native speaker of social media? No, no. It's just real loud, and he's good. He's good at it. He's good at the old kind of things. She's a call-and-response person. Like, it's really interesting how she responds and calls and she's very funny and clever and she uses it for both political use and she uses it for getting ideas out and she uses it for pushing back her people who are against her which there are many um she's attracted a lot she's 
they just can't, don't know what to do with her. The right wing always is like, rah, rah, Casio, and she's like so smooth. That dance video she did in response, they tried to get her on the dance video, which she looked adorable in. I was like, what are you going to, she looks adorable. You can't beat adorable in the first one. And then she did another one that was just recently. And we, I slowed it down because I was watching what she was up to because she's, she's just, I think she does it without even knowing what she's doing. Um, she, when you slow down that video, it's really interesting. So she does the dancing, which is very adorable. It's just like delightful. She's delightful, but it's not sexual. It's not anything. It's just really interesting. She's just, just, it's pleasant to watch her. Right. So she does the dancing and then she spins around. She's a very good dancer. She spins around. And if you slow it down, she takes her finger and she points to her sign, which says representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. And she looks at you, and then she dances into her office, and you're like, oh, my God, she just did a power thing, a, like an adorable thing. It was really brilliant. And you don't know why you liked it, but then I realized she was giving all these messages really beautifully. And then she's really good at, like, when, when one of those stupid old con- Congress people were like, oh, she's really just loudmouth, whatever they said about her. She's not the, she doesn't represent the party. And then she goes, new Congress, who dis? I was like, well done. <laughs> I think if people, if, if politicians hear you say that, that we're going to see more dancing just, from politicians. You can't politicians, do it. You can't so. do it. That, no one's good at it. That's the problem. Like, Trump is good at his blunderbuss style. He really is. He's quite good, even if, you know, you, you react to it, right? All that you're like, what? Like, you know, today with the airlines, you're like, I almost was like, what? Oh, forget it. Like, I was like, just keep going, senor. Um, but he, uh, he uses it well. I think he does use it well. He's the greatest troll in the history of Twitter, I think. Um, and she uses it well. I think she's, she's an interesting case. I don't think everyone can do it. And that is, it's really hard to be genuine. And I think both of them are genuine to themselves. And that's why they work for different reasons. His is very negative. It's a very negative, either trying to get his base going or trying to piss off the media or trying to piss off the Democrats. Hers is very different. I, I'm, I'm fascinated by her use of the internet. She uses Instagram. She uses Reddit. She uses everything. It's really interesting. So we've come to the last question, and I wanted to ask you, you see a lot of the headlines talking about the ethics or the moral compass of Silicon Valley. You are based in Silicon Valley, right? There are a lot of us in Silicon Valley who don't feel like those those stories really represent, that that Silicon Valley is not monolithic. No, we're just talking about tech, though. It's not all you people who are, like, enjoying coffee in, you know, San Mateo. That's not who they're talking about. Like, what do you, I'm talking about big tech. I, I realize that. So I guess I'm wondering, so you don't take it, when you see those, you don't take it as referring to you. Certainly not referring to me. I didn't build that mess. You know, I just, I wrote about it. Like, no, <laughs> no, I don't think. But I think it's, you know, look at, just like you would with the railroads or chemical companies or big banks, these are powerful people with enormous, they're the richest people on earth. They're not, it's not the finance people. It's the richest people on earth are all tech people. You know, Jeff Bezos is $164 billion. I mean, come on. Like, they're, they're powerful people running powerful corporations, and, and they enjoy unfettered anything. Like, they, they've never been regulated. And I'm sorry, they, they don't get to be that way because they're doing... The, it's a tax on you. It's a tax on me when this stuff happens to the democracy, when elections get tampered with using these things, it's a tax on every single person in America, and they get all the money. And I'm sorry they can't... They, if they want all the money and they, and they want to benefit from their inventions, and they should, from their hard work, and they thought up, you know, oh, I thought up this. If they want to win on that, they have to be responsible for their platforms, period. And if they're not, then someone else is going to make them. And that, I think that's... They've been trying at self-regulation for a long time. And one of the things I think a lot about, and someone reminded me this day, is I think it hurts small company creation. I think when these big companies are, just like when Microsoft sat like chicken fat over the entire ecosystem, and it did when people were scared of them, nobody moved. These companies are much more friendly, but they're still problematic. They're not, they're not like mean Bill Gates, and they're not threatening, but they threaten the idea of, of innovation. And we are at a 30-year low of startup creation. Why is that? Because we have all these big companies. Everything flows to them and not to where it should, which is creation. The great thing about Silicon Valley has been this amazing creation of, of startups. And so right now, it's not happening. And it's not happening either because there's not a new innovation. to ha- There's not a new paradigm shift like mobile or 
graphic user interface or the computer, the mini computer, whatever the move was. The last one was mobile. The last big shift was mobile, and it was brought in by the iPhone. We need another new innovation to happen, and we don't know where it's, what garage it's happening in or what lab it's happening. There's going to be something else that's going to shift these people out of, out of the, the main spots eventually. But while they're here and they're in charge of things, just like Microsoft had to be stopped from doing its behavior and killing off of companies, they have to be stopped from doing the negative things and, and allow more stuff to come up from under it. And I don't think breaking them up, they did, AT&T breaking up worked really well for everybody. All of a sudden there was a very vibrant ecosystem. That may not be the answer, but something, they have to be regulated in some way so that we, or, 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 or not have this enormous power in some way so that others can come up. And that's the most important part, is to create this vibrant ecosystem that will bring up the very next version of it and the very next version of that. And that's, um, you know, Silicon Valley is where the young eats its old, right? I mean, if you think about it. Um, right? That's instead of, yeah, that's what happens here. And so what is the next... What is the next replacement cycle? What's the next innovation? And I think that you don't get that. You don't, you can't think of, like, what is the most recent innovation that's come out of Facebook? Zero, right? Zero, 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 right? They, they, you know, Evan Spiegel is the chief product officer of Facebook at this point, as, as far as I can tell. Um, and he's suffering for it. But so what's the biggest innovation to come out of Google lately? They've been a little more innovative, but these big companies, they just can't once they get to a size. Amazon has been very innovative, let me just say. They've been unusually innovative for, for... But there's all kinds of... But they don't control all of commerce, by the way. That's why there's so many fascinating... They control a small part of commerce. So there's all these fascinating commerce companies. But now everybody's a little worried about the Amazon effect. Like, if I go into this business, will Amazon copy it? If I go into this business, well, that's never going to be good. And so I think, you know, destru- creation and destruction are both good things for Silicon Valley. And so they have to be... Slow down a little bit in order for the rest of the stuff to come up. That's my feeling. I feel and like again, I love tech. I want more tech, different tech, not just not these guys necessarily. The creation and destruction makes me think we've come full circle to your app about quotes about death. Yeah. Well, you know, so. it's interesting. I don't know if you noticed uh, on my, I have two tattoos and I'll finish with this. This is um, entropy and this is entropy. You know, this is the idea that everything destroys, right? I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm being like, I'm making a very small version of it, but it's that everything dissipates. Everything goes toward energy dissipates, right? So that's the arrows going outward, and then everything organizes, right? At the same time, their creation and destruction, I think it's a really important concept, is that as everything gets destroyed, things become created. And I think that's a really good way to look at it. And so, you know, they, I know they cry like, oh, we don't want to be regulated, or, oh, you're being mean to us. Well, that's the way it goes, like, right? That's the way it goes. They're going to have to recognize what's coming for them, so. which is death. I'm <laughs> <laughs> all of you, all of you shall be dead. <laughs> so I hope you all enjoyed this evening's program brought to you by the Markla Center for Applied Ethics, the Commonwealth Club Silicon Valley, and the High Tech Law Institute. Again, we would like to thank Kara Swisher, Executive Director of Recode, our audience here at Santa Clara University, and those of you joining us on the radio. And now this meeting is adjourned.